Well, good morning, everyone. All right. Well, uh, like you, I just got the news about the building. <laughs> we are literally, the latest update was that the church is meeting on Tuesday. So we're literally, be, I'm literally being forced to trust the Lord. It's out of my hands. So I'm like really been, honestly, as I think I've mentioned, if you've been stressed out for like three or four months over this whole thing. But uh, the Lord said, well, you're going to continue to be stressed out until you trust in, in me. So I have nothing to do but trust in the Lord and the good people at either Rexco or First Baptist Church of Corona. So pray for me. So last week I asked you guys to pray for my uncle because he hasn't, and my aunt, they haven't been to church in three weeks. And look at that, they're right there. They're back. And then also by the grace of God, our brother... Guy is back in this in the pews there, <laughs> so God's uh, healing people and bringing them back. It's it's awesome to see. I I feel in a way like the the father when John gave that prodigal son analogy. Honestly, that's how I feel as a pastor when I see people coming back to church. It's so cool. In my mind, I'm embracing you. Believe me, <laughs> you're like don't back off, buddy. That's okay. Calm down. Well, this morning we are going to be back in the book of Isaiah, so turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10, and we're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 19, and the, the title of this morning's sermon is The Destruction of Pride. And so this morning we're going to learn two important lessons from today's text in Isaiah. Number one is the Lord has control over all things, and secondly, that pride is destructive. Specifically, when it exalts itself or exalts something over and above the Lord and as it draws us away from God. And I pray this morning. Hello. There we go. A floor mic. Okay, there we go. So as I was saying, pride is destructive specifically when something exalts itself or someone is exalted above and beyond the Lord or takes our eyes off the Lord. As I said, as we look at the text this morning, I pray that you see that. So let's pray and pray for our time this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the prophets of old who boldly proclaim your word. And for those who have preserved it over the centuries through your power. And I pray this morning that as we read your text and proclaim your word, that you would speak to every person in this room. As John prayed this morning, we all come with different things in our minds and our hearts and different things going on in our lives. But this morning, I pray that we would focus on you and you alone and that your Holy Spirit would search the hearts and minds of each and every one of us this morning and speak to us in a powerful way. And we pray this through the power of your Son and through the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Isaiah chapter 10. Let's, let's read through. Verses 5 through 19, as I mentioned, and look at this prophecy. Well, let's read while Armando's working on that. So let's, let's read. Starting in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, a commission, and commission it against the people of my fury, to capture booty and to seize plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. 
For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath or Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and let her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this for I have understanding and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gather all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors and under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forests and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. And so that's the prophecy that we're going to look at this morning. So go back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 10. Look at verse 5. Are we good? All right. Just as a side note, my favorite verse in this whole thing is verse 19, where it says a child could write them down. Just showing how small, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it's one of those things I was geeking out over this week, that verse, I don't know. So anyways, you're like, what does that have? It has nothing to do with anything. It was just one of those things that's on my mind, you can just blurt it out, sorry. All right, starting at verse 5. So as I had mentioned here this morning, we're going to see a prophecy It's written about Assyria, but if you think about who was Isaiah writing to, who was his prophecy written to? It was written to Judah. So even though it's about, it's like written like he's writing to Assyria, Judah is the one that's going to read this. If you ask yourself, why would he do that? Why would it, why would he write to Judah, but as if he's writing to Assyria? And I think he's doing this to demonstrate to Judah that God is in control of all things. Let me show you that this morning. So at the very beginning in verse 10, excuse me, verse 5, he says, Woe to Assyria, as if he's, again, speaking to Assyria. But woe in this instance, and John's talked about this before when he talked about woes. In this instance, it's not a warning. It's more like a summons. So God is summoning Assyria from the north, to come down and do something, and we'll see that in a moment. So he wants Judah to know, hey, this threat that's coming, 
Because in the context of what's going on in the life of Judah, Assyria, this great army who, who at one time they had a treaty with, has now been just pulverizing all the nations around Judah. And it has even taken away Samaria, which is the northern tribe of Israel. And they are at the gates of Judah. And Judah's obviously freaking out. And God wants them to know that, hey, I know what's going on. As a matter of fact, I brought them to the gates of Judah, as we'll see in a moment. Because it's the Lord who's behind this foreign invasion. It's the Lord who's in control, even of those who are not his. Oftentimes, when you're reading scripture, it looks like the Lord might not be in control as you're reading. And it's like, what's going on? Or even in your life, you may think, hey, is the Lord in control of what's going on? Because this is totally contrary to what all, he is all about, whatever's going on in your life. And maybe Judah was thinking at the time as well. But God is clearly telling them that I'm in control. Because look at verse 5. He says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So he's clearly telling Judah that, hey, this invasion is from me. I've summoned, it, I've summoned Assyria to come down here. A matter of fact, they are the ones who are going to exact discipline on you. And I'm going to use them. I'm going to use a foreign godless nation to discipline my own people. Look at verse 6. For what purpose? Why does the Lord do this? He goes, I send it against a godless nation. Interesting. Who's he sending this nation against? Against Judah, who are God's people. But in God's eyes, what does he call his own people? A godless nation. They are not, they have not for a long time been keeping the covenant of God. Right? God is very angry with his people because they have continually rejected him. Now, don't look at this and say, oh, man, if I do one thing wrong, God is going to chasten me. Or discipline me in such a way. Now, God can and he does. But what's happening in context here, this has been a generation of disobedience towards the Lord over and over and over again, as we've been studying just in these 10 chapters of Isaiah. And in their pride, Judah has refused to listen to the prophets of God and have refused to submit to the Lord. We've been talking about that over and over again here. So now what's happening is God is saying, you guys have broken my covenant. You have broken it by worshiping idols. You have broken it by falsely worshiping Yahweh, the Lord God. Like you guys have been worshiping God in a way that I have not been asked to be worshiped. You have been seeking counsel from ungodly spiritualists. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how Israel was going to Isaiah's disciples and were asking them, hey, don't inquire of the Lord, but go inquire of a medium or a spiritualist, like using occultic practices to discern what was going on in their lives. This is how far God's people have gone, have fallen away. They've trusted in their own abilities They've trusted in foreign powers around them. Like I said at the beginning here, these, in Syria, these Assyrian invaders of Judah were also at one time in a treaty with Judah. At one time, Judah 
had made a treaty with Assyria to ask for protection, to be in a, a league or in covenant with them. Now this very nation who they had a covenant with, who they put their trust in, has now turned and come down to attack them. So instead of calling out to the Lord, they have deliberately and willingly violated God's law over and over and over and over and over again. Despite all the prophets coming to them, despite them seeing God deliver them over and over again, they refuse to follow after God. And that's why God calls them in verse 6, a godless nation. Very telling about how far the nation of Israel has fallen. But unlike Israel, the Lord keeps covenant. And part of this discipline was his covenant that he said, if you guys go into a foreign land and you falsely, if you do all these things that I've just listed a little while ago, that God is going to discipline his children, just like a parent, right? We give our children parameters. And you say, if you step outside these parameters, what happens? Discipline, right? Discipline happens. And you have to exact discipline in order for them to learn. And this is exactly what God is doing with his people. God keeps covenant. God keeps his word even in disciplining his own children. But as we will see... They will not totally be annihilated. The Lord is a merciful God in keeping covenant with his people. Even in his discipline, he offers them another chance at repenting. Um, Chronologically speaking, just for some context about what's happening here, it's going to be about probably over 100 more years before the nation of Judah is totally taken into exile. They're going to get another hundred years or so of chances. It's like God is saying one, two, two and a quarter. Some of you parents that do that and extend two and three until you run out of fractions and hoping that you don't have to discipline your children. Well, God disciplines, though, but he gives them a long three. You know, before it's going to be over 100 years before the Babylonian Empire comes and takes away the nation of Judah into exile for 70 years. So the Lord disciplined. He keeps covenant. So why has he done that? Again, Israel has been rebelling for years over and over again, avoiding the not listening to the Lord's messengers, not taking the discipline that the Lord has given them. And so. Again, the Lord keeps covenant. The Lord's purpose of bringing Assyria to the walls of Judah, to Jerusalem, is to discipline them. That's why he did that. Interesting, though, look at verse 7 now. Um, God now focuses on Assyria as if he's, well, he's talking to Assyria, and Assyria, the king of Assyria, is speaking In the next few verses, in verse seven, God says this yet. So God brought Assyria down to discipline them. And this is what he says to discipline Judah. And he says this yet. It does not so intend, meaning Assyria doesn't intend to do what God's told them to do, nor does it plan so in its heart. But rather it is it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. 
So God is saying, hey, I brought Syria down here to discipline Israel, not to totally defeat them, not to totally annihilate them. But he says, but Assyria in their hearts, they don't look for discipline. They look to totally destroy the nations that they come in contact with. They're destructive people. The instrument that God is using is now rebelling itself against God. And this is what happens in verse 8. He says, for it says, meaning Assyria, are not my princes all kings? So this is where the pride comes in for Assyria. They start boasting. And even my princes are like kings. And then he goes through some of the towns that they have destroyed. Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? Damascus. As my hand is reached into the kingdoms of the idols. This is the Assyrian king speaking. Or God seen into his heart. This is what he's thinking, you can say. Whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. So the Assyrian king, as he's coming to attack, is saying, Hey, I've killed all these foreign nations whose idols are greater than the idols of Israel. Right? Samaria representing the northern kingdom and Jerusalem representing the southern kingdom. He says, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So as I mentioned, Assyria has already wiped out the northern tribes of Israel. And he's saying, The God of Israel didn't stop me in the north, and the God of Israel is not going to stop me in the south. And then this is where God speaks up. As he continue on, he says, so it shall be when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. So God is saying Israel, I mean, uh, Assyria is coming to destroy you and they're saying these things, but I've actually brought them in here to do this. It is my doing that they are going to discipline you. And then looking at verse 12 again, he will say, speaking of the king, excuse me, God says, I will punish I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. The Lord's saying, even though I brought Assyria down here, he's rebelled. The Assyrian king has rebelled against my will, and I'm going to punish him because he's become so arrogant. And then he he continues on pointing out the arrogance of the king. Look at verse 13. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding. Again, the king of Assyria, nobody stopped him. He thinks he's the man, basically. I've destroyed all these places. Nobody, by my hand, I've done this. I have all wisdom. I have all understanding. And I have removed the boundaries of these people. So he's wiped out their boundaries, their nations. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. Again, this is the king of Assyria speaking. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. And so he's bragging about how great he is. And the Assyrian kingdom, if you read about it in history books, was a violent, cruel nation. And they destroyed and crushed nations. They were fierce. And so rightly so, the king thinks he's done all these things, or at least he brags about how awesome he is, in a sense he is, but... Who's behind all this is actually the Lord. The Lord has brought the king. and He has given the king, even a godless foreign king, all the power. Again, a lesson in God's sovereignty that God is in control of all things. 
So the Lord says, you know what? The Lord's going to punish this king. As I said in verse 12, he says, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And then look at verse 15. This is where God asks some rhetorical questions. He says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops it? So just think of that. When you're holding an axe and you chop something with an axe, who has the power? Who's in control of it? Is the one who wields the axe in control or is the axe in control? That's the comparison he's making. He's saying Assyria is like the axe, and the Lord is the one doing the chopping. How can Assyria say, I'm the one with all power? And he goes on to give another example. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or the rod lifting him who is not wood. So the Lord is making that distinction, that I'm the one in control of all things. Assyria thinks they're in control, but no, I'm really the one behind it all for the discipline of his children. So God's going to discipline Assyria for their pride. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. He's going to send disease among the warriors of Assyria. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame and the the light of Israel become a fire of his holy one, a flame, and it will burn and devour his throne, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and the fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. In the annals of the kings of Assyria, they record that they came to the gates of Jerusalem, but they don't record what had happened for some reason. The Bible, if you read in another chapters, I think it's in Second Chronicles. It could be in First Chronicles. I'm sorry, I don't remember. But it talks about that the Assyrians come to the gates of Jerusalem and then they're called away for a reason. There's a, there's a fight somewhere else. And, and Assyria never, ever comes back to Jerusalem. So here's a warning to Jerusalem about what's going to happen. And he's saying, but I'm going to pull them away. I'm going to defeat their warriors. And he does eventually. So much so, as I mentioned at the beginning, that he's going to take away their their army. All the glory of Assyria will be decimated. So much so that verse 19 says, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. Meaning there's not that many, right? Think of your child, how far they can count when they're real little. Not very many. That's the point. He's going to decimate Assyria, this great, and wealthy kingdom is going to be brought to nothing by the Lord himself. And this is what he's telling the nation of Israel. So this is both showing the nation of Israel that I am in control of all this, and I am still merciful to you too, because here is the king shouting at your gates that they're going to destroy you, and then they leave all of a sudden. God's hand is working. God's a merciful God, even despite all that they have done to him. And again, remember, he calls Jerusalem a godless nation. Interesting. And again, eventually Assyria is, if you read the history books, Assyria is destroyed by the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian empires, and never again will they come to Jerusalem. So that's a prophecy that Isaiah records so what are we to learn from this? Again, this was written to the nation of Israel about as if it was written to Assyria, but he, 
Isaiah wanted the nation of Judah to learn a lesson. And this morning we can learn a few lessons from this. Isaiah 10 gives us a glimpse into how the Lord orchestrates human history. So what does that mean to us? If you truly believe that God orchestrates all things in this world, and God orchestrates all things, we should understand, for his glory and for our good. What does that mean for us? That means, number one, we should trust him with our very lives. If this great God that we read about and sing about, do you really believe those things that you say? If God is orchestrating all things for his glory and our good, then we can trust him with our very life. Here, God orchestrated a mass army from Assyria to discipline Jerusalem and then pulled them back. We can trust him with our life. Not only that, since the Lord is orchestrating all things for his glory and your good or our good, we can trust him in the midst of calamity. Even when crazy things are going on, things that you don't understand, sickness, disease, world disasters, economic collapse and fallout, you know, are you thinking maybe the wrong person gets elected into office? Is not God still in control of that? God is greater than our elected officials. God knows what is going on there. We just need to trust him. We can trust the Lord in the midst of calamity. And since the Lord is orchestrating all things for his glory and our good, we should follow his ways, shouldn't we? If God's in control of all things, that means the laws that he's laid out, the commands that he's given us are there for our good, and we should follow them. And rebelling against him is foolishness, if you think about it. We should not rebel against him because it's foolishness. God is going to have his way in our lives. Because he is in control of all things. So again, what I want us to learn this morning again is that if God's orchestrating all things in world history, if he's in control of all things for his glory and our good, then we should trust him in these areas of our life. Another thing that I want us to learn this morning is what can we learn from pride? The pride that was demonstrated by Judah and by Assyria. First of all, we should know this, that God knows our hearts. Maybe some are saying, you're sitting out there this morning, I'm not very prideful against God, and I hope not. I think if we're, if we're honest, each and every one of us has a prideful heart in some sense. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to be, you know, proud of an accomplishment or proud of your children or proud of a promotion at work or those types of things. Again, Pride becomes a problem, as I mentioned in the very beginning, when it takes the place of God. When, it, when someone or something is exalted in the place of God or starts to distract you or take you away from the Lord. And so I would just say this morning that let God search your hearts because God knows our hearts. You can, we can fool each other in this room about pride and about who we are. But just take this as a warning that God sees our hearts. In Psalm 44, verses 20 and 21, the psalmist says this. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of our heart. 
So he's saying, hey, if, if we've really fallen away from the Lord and we've started worshiping other gods, God's, really, God's going to find out because he knows our hearts. And again, this morning, we can all sit here and say, I love the Lord, I worship the Lord God, but only you and him truly know your hearts. That's good and bad because, right, sometimes we struggle. We really want to follow the Lord, but, man, I just, I just mess up all the time. Well, he knows your heart. He knows if you're sincere or not. And that's good and bad for those who are sincerely trying to follow after God. But for those of you this morning who might be here playing a game with God, I would warn you that God sees your heart. God truly knows. You can fool any one of us in this room, but you can't fool God. I like what uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, turn there with me, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. When David, King David addresses his son Solomon, he says this, As for you, my son Solomon, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the heart. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Again, God knows our hearts. And I pray this morning that each and every person's heart is bent towards truly, sincerely wanting to follow God. And we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it all the time. But if it's sincere, the Lord knows. And so what can we learn from the pride demonstrated by Judah and Assyria is that God knows the heart. God even knew the heart of an Assyrian king who was not his. And he, can, he knows ours for sure. Secondly, pride can cause us to lose sight of our Lord. We're so fixated on something else that we lose sight of who God is that we exalt ourselves or somebody else or something above and beyond God. And I would just caution us in that. That pride is very destructive, and it can do that. Thirdly, pride can cause us to unjustly exalt ourselves and others. Right? The Assyrian king, remember, he was like, I did this. I have all wisdom. I have all understanding. And it's so easy for us to fall into pride, isn't it? We're doing well in life. Things are going great. We get promoted. You get a raise or you get noticed by your boss or something like that. You get noticed by an organization. And you start to exalt yourself over and above the Lord God. It's okay to be, uh, you know, happy about something that you've accomplished and even proud, proud of what you've done. But don't exalt it over God. Don't let that become your focus. Don't let that um, take you away. And help you lose sight of the Lord. Again, don't exalt other people as well, right? It's so easy. We live in a culture that's full of people we might idolize or look up to. But do we put them over and above our God? We can do that with our children. Our children become more important than God himself. Our spouse can become more important than God himself. If If the few people in here that have gone through marriage counseling with me, Hopefully they remember this. I won't call you out and ask you to answer, right? In the category of what's important in its life, it's God, your spouse, then your children, and then your family. That's biblical. God comes above your spouse. Your, then your spouse comes above your children. Some, it's when we get those all misaligned that we have problems, especially when we put spouse or children above 
God. You're like, hey, well, where do I come in? Oh, you come down in after that, right? And I say this, if the husband and wife keep their focus on the Lord and they're both drawn to the Lord, they come closer together. But if one's going to the Lord and the other's going the other way, they're farther apart. And if you're both not looking at the Lord, you go farther apart. We need to keep our focus. God is the one who needs to be exalted in our lives. So what can we learn from the pride demonstrated by Judah and Assyria? Again, number one, God knows the hearts of men. Pride can use or can cause us to lose sight of our Lord, and pride can cause us to unjustly exalt ourselves and others. So then the question becomes, well, how do we keep from being prideful? How do we do that? Well, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's look at the book of Philippians, and we'll close with these last Seven points. The perfect number seven. Philippians, you might find more in here, but we have time for seven. Philippians chapter two is a great chapter of us being like Christ. So Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. Let me read the first eight verses and then we'll just point out seven things and we'll close with this. It says this, therefore, if is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So this is the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the church. Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intended on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross just a great a great few verses there let's just point let's just pull out seven things and conclude how do we keep from being prideful number one be in fellowship with the spirit of god at the very beginning he says if there is any consolation of love is there is there any fellowship of the spirit in order to stay away from being prideful we need to be in constant Fellowship with the Spirit of God. That's talking about having your personal relationship with the Lord God Himself. Have an ongoing relationship with the Lord. He's speaking to you. You're praying to Him. You're worshiping Him. You're reading His Word. Those things will help us realize who we are, who He is, how we are to live. That's number one. Be in fellowship with the Spirit of God. Number two, be in loving fellowship with other believers. And he says this in the first two verses about being uh, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, united in one purpose. Being in level in loving fellowship with other believers, that's in your congregation here at the church. When you have a good relationship with the body, you'll be more accountable to one another. We can speak into each other's lives, hold each other accountable, get godly counsel. That will help us remain humble and keep us from being prideful right when you let people speak into your life 
you're open and honest with them. They speak into your life about what's going on and what they see. And we need that. That's good. That's healthy. You know, I'm so thankful that um, I won't point the brother out that yesterday at men's study, um, one of the brothers was being open and honest and kind of asking me and Pastor John about something that we didn't do. You know, just reminding us that, hey, we're not. And that's a good thing. And he did it in love and in the right tone. And it was good. You know, we don't need to talk about what it was, even though he was wrong. But that's okay. (laughs) Just kidding. But what I'm talking about is that we're in fellowship with one another. He felt it was okay to speak and ask something that he maybe didn't agree with or didn't see right. And, And thankfully, we listened, you know, not because we're so humble. You know, but I think we just have that type of relationship with one another. And that's important. Being loving fellowship with other believers. Thirdly, be united in purpose. I like what the Apostle Paul says in verse two here. He says, united in spirit, intent on one purpose as a church. If we're focused on the right thing, the proclamation of God's love to this world, the gospel. Then we're going to all be going the same direction. So when one of us gets out of line, we bring, lovingly bring them back, and we keep them from becoming too prideful. If somebody deters and is trying to go off on their own thing, we bring them back. And we have, one per, we have one purpose, one focus, and the church will be on the same page. Fourthly, do not do anything out of selfishness. Look at verse 4. Do not... Merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Real simple, right? So when you ask yourself, what's the intent or purpose of doing what you are about to do? Whatever it is. Is this going to help somebody more than myself? Even in personal goals, you think about it even in your professional career. Most of the time, we might be doing things to get ahead in, in the workplace, but Hopefully it's for the right purpose, right? So that I might provide better for my family or I might get into a position where I might have a bigger influence on other people. It's not just about magnifying yourself. It's about helping others. Even within the church body, same thing. What's your purpose on getting involved in a certain ministry? Is it to further the gospel? Is it to edify the believers? That's what it should be. It shouldn't be so that, hey, I can be, you know, the man or the woman of this ministry, or the head of this ministry, whatever it is. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. So this takes some self-reflection, right, in our life. Why am I doing this? Why do I want that? This will keep us from being prideful. Fifthly, put others ahead of yourselves, right? Again, don't make selfish decisions. Think about how your decisions benefit, uh, benefit others' people as well. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I like verses 5 through 7 as now he says, Have an attitude, have this attitude in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus, our example, our Lord, we're supposed to be like him, growing towards to be like him. He says, have the same attitude that Jesus had who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So here is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who didn't have to be a servant, but he did. He emptied himself, took on the form of a human, and became a servant to his disciples and to the nation of Israel. 
He was a servant. And each and every one of us should have that same attitude. We are servants of one another. Although I'm the quote-unquote, you know, head pastor or senior pastor, I am hopefully but a servant. I serve God's word to the congregation. That's my part in this church. Or serve the church in any way way that I can. It's not that, hey, I'm I'm the head guy. Everyone has to do what I say. No, that's not it at all. Because we don't do that. We're to have this mind that is the same mind that Christ had. Empty ourselves. Take on the form of a bondservant. Lastly, how do we keep from being prideful? Well, at the very end there, I like what it says in verse 8. It says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ demonstrated his humility by being obedient toward God, even if it meant death. That's hard for us, right? We, to be, like, we're, we can become prideful because we want to do what we want. And we become prideful when we disobey God. But Christ obeyed the Lord even to death. We need to make decisions in our life that are in steps with God's word, not just because it feels good to us. Right? Or I don't care, I want to do this. I'm not listening to God anymore because it didn't work. I'm doing it my way. Jesus himself obeyed God even if it meant to the death. You know, I think of just one example a long, long time ago, a few years ago, in uh, counseling a husband. And uh, him and his wife were struggling. And he was like, am I supposed to even you know, love her even when she's, you know, doing this, this, and that? And I said, what do you think I said? Yes. Even if she doesn't love me? Yes. Even if she's disrespectful to me? Yes. Why? Because we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? Did the church rebel against Christ? Yes. Did the, did the church deny Christ? Yes. And what did Christ do? He died for her. It's hard. It, it's right. My if my wife was here, she'd be saying, "That's right. You need to do that." But it's obedience, obedience even to the death. Why? Because we we love the Lord. We serve Him and all that He's done for us. And again, we don't do it to earn His love. He already loves us. We follow Him because it demonstrates that we're forgiven what he's done for us. And when we live that way, you know, it will help us not become so prideful. And again, this isn't uh, this is a constant battle, right? It's going to be a battle for the rest of our lives. But these are steps that we can take to become to keep from becoming prideful because ultimately pride will lead to destruction in our lives. And you can think of maybe people in your lives who refuse First of all, to give their life to the Lord because they're prideful. And you just see them falling deeper and deeper into sin, falling away from God further and further. And they won't return and come back to the Lord or they won't turn to him a first time. But just let me warn you, God's going to send prophets to you over and over again to proclaim his word to you. And at one point, God's going to say, that's it. You heard the last prophet and there's no opportunity for you to return. And I pray that you would listen to the Spirit of the Lord speak to you and not wait for that time of destruction.
when it's too late. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word. Sometimes your word can be hard, but it is truthful. And Lord, you work for your own glory and for our good. And we thank you for that. And I pray this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room who is who knows in their heart that they have that it is pride that keeps them from following after you, that they would let that go, that they would see that it is foolish to foolishness to rebel against you and they would totally surrender their lives to you. I pray for that, Lord. And I pray for us uh, just in general, when we feel pride creeping up in our lives, that we would remember to be like Christ, who emptied himself and became a servant. And help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters so that we might grow closer to you. And when we fail and when we fall, that we would not be so prideful that we would not return and ask for forgiveness from you or from our brothers and sisters, but that we would do that. And that you would restore us. For a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up each time. We thank you for your word and for your love for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.